This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 99 of the Sustainable-ish podcast. I genuinely can't quite believe I'm nearly at 100 episodes. How on earth has that happened? And importantly, what on earth should I do to celebrate or to mark the occasion? Do get in touch with me and let me know what you'd love to hear for the big 100. Drop me an email on jen at sustainableish.co.uk. So today's episode, before we get carried away with centenaries, is an absolute cracker. Whoever knew that composting could be so interesting? I promise. It's genuinely like magic. I still don't really understand how it works. I think it genuinely is magic. But after chatting with the amazing Catherine Howells from Barefoot Kitchen, I now feel a little less like it's this kind of dark art full of smoke and mirrors. And importantly, I feel a little bit less like I'm cocking it all up. Or at least if I do cock it all up, then it's really not the end of the world. I think actually I could easily become a composting geek. Although in reality, I'm probably way too lazy. And I can see why people can become obsessed with their compost. In fact, Tyson, who is in the Knackered Mums Eco Club, has even named hers and posts regular updates, which I love seeing on her Instagram feed. Now, in my head, composting was this really complicated process and there seemed to be lots of different types and methods of doing it. But Catherine is so practical and so down to earth and she cuts through all the unnecessary BS and takes us back to basics, making it feel eminently doable for even the least green-fingered of us. Enjoy. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very nice (laughs) to be here. (laughs) This is, I was just saying to you, I think there's this um, secret sort of underworld of composting and that all these people who we thought were normal sane people are really composting geeks. So I reckon this is going to be a real... Lots of people are going to be interested in this one. So before we dive into all things composting, um, and before I nickname you the compost lady, because you're not, you're so much more than that. (laughs) Can you introduce yourself to us, please? I quite like the compost lady. I might stick, you know. Yeah, Um, yeah, so my name's Catherine, and we've got a little social enterprise in the northeast of England called Barefoot Kitchen. um, And we deliver plot-to-plate projects for people, places, and the planet. So that takes some saying, actually. I might need to refresh that. So mainly we deal with food projects, but obviously composting is a big part of the way that we tackle our food waste. So that's 
the food waste that we generate and then you know just the, the material that we get off the sites where we grow and things like that so it's we like to kind of tie in those loose ends so it makes perfect sense to include compost in what we do mm. so yeah so that's where we are I'm currently sat in sunny Middlesbrough it's not sunny at all um and uh, yeah that's where we are and have you got four kids is that right five 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 but two <laughs> Five, but two of them are identical, so I'll take four as an option. <laughs> how are you? Yeah, how are you five. still sane, standing, like after lockdown? And oh my goodness! To be honest, I'm not sure that I am or ever have been. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, five, five, having five kids does put a different slant on, on life generally. But I must say that they're all a little bit older now, which makes it easy or easier. Um, so the youngest is 12 and the oldest is now 20 and gone okay. so that makes it a little bit easier and my kids are by and large feral so they're literally out of control um, <laughs> and uh, you know I do a lot of things and do a lot of things badly really so but that's just the way it goes and after kind of 20 years I've, I've got used to accepting those kind of compromises really but yeah it's not been without its challenges over the years I have to say. I bet, I bet. And so what's your background? How did you get into this? Oh God, I'm one, I am literally one of those knackered mums who's done almost everything to fit around children. Mm. So my background is, it's always been environmental. So I went to university and did an environmental geology degree years ago, a long time ago now. And then I've basically dotted around with various different jobs um, to kind of slot in around the kids. So, um, but for the last 10 years, 10, 50, 50, God, it'd be 15 years now. I've worked pretty much exclusively in kind of food growing and community food growing. And that led to the setup of Barefoot Kitchen a couple of years ago. So we've been growing a couple of years. We're quite new, um, but it comes on the background of quite a lot of experience in community food growing and managing mm. community food projects and that kind of thing. Did you grow up in a very growing family? Do you know, were your parents planting their own fruit and veg and all that sort of thing? So they'll probably kill me when I say no to that question, because especially my mum, my mum will clobber me. Um, <laughs> my dad is definitely not. My dad would astroturf the world if he had a chance. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> my mum's actually, she was one of those kind of stereotypical 1960s, 70s hippies. So we grew up in, in a kind of vegetarian household, mm. um, but not particularly with food growing. But actually, when I track back kind of through the generations, my grandparents were really involved in food mm. growing. And, you know, even further back than that, I've got a lovely diary from, I think, my great, great, great grandma. And they used to grow a veg in the front garden and sell it. So I've got a list of all the varieties. Oh, my God, how gorgeous. So that's really lovely. But, you know, I grew up, I've grown up in an, you know, an urban industrial town and the opportunities for that have been Mm. fairly limited. So I don't know where it's come from, really. I think I just really love food. So what was your first sort of foray into growing your own? And was it, you know, some pots in on the patio or... So how did you get started with all that? So if I take away all the kind of the childhood stuff of, you know, yeah. kind of doing bits and bobs with parents and grandparents, I have to be honest and say the first job that I got kind of 15 years ago was um, working okay. in school gardens or so running school gardening clubs. Like, I don't think my ex-boss would 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 uh, would hold me over a bow for this, but I did completely blag my way through the interview. <laughs> And I have to say, it was on the basis, I just thought, well, how hard can it be to teach kids how to grow <laughs> potatoes? <laughs> and I thought, if I stay one step ahead all the time, mm. it will be fine. So it's, um, that's probably the kind of the first thing. I learned very quickly. Um, and I have to say, I have no formal qualifications in, in horticulture or food mm. growing or anything like that at all. It literally has been just learning from experience. 
And I think that's a really important point to make to say to people, you know, really just have a go. If something goes wrong, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's just the experience is really lovely. Mm. Um, And like, it's the same with composting. A lot of stuff about food growing is kind of over mystified. You know, it's seeds are designed to grow. They want to grow. They want to produce food. And it's it's really important that people aren't faced by that and Mm. just feel like they can can have that experience. Yeah. I come from a place of complete ignorance, actually. So. Because I do too. So, <laughs> so composting, I really want this to be a sort of, you know, a composting 101, a kind of beginner's guide to composting. Um, so I think although people listening may have some knowledge around composting, I'm going to assume no knowledge and we're going to kind of go from there. So why would we want to compost? So there's a couple of reasons for me. Um, certainly as, as a, a business and actually as a household um I'm a real fan of kind of permaculture principles and again that's one of those things that's kind of over mystified but permaculture is a design system that sits really nicely with somebody wanting a sustainable lifestyle um, the thing that really sparks with me is this idea of closing a loop so if you look at your house in its entirety how can you minimize the inputs and keep the things that you've got um, within your within your household within mm. your space um, so for me composting is is a really part of a kind of important part of that you know I, I want to be reducing the waste that I'm generating through food um, and I want to be creating something that's of value to my household mm. um, and I think that's where where the, the penny drop moment is with composting it's um, you know a lot of people see it as a way to get rid of waste mm-hmm. But actually, if you switch that completely and thinking about a way of creating something that's of value, Mm. it becomes much easier to engage with that whole process. So that's the main reason for me is just that kind of closing that loop system. Mm. The other thing is in our area, we don't have food waste collections. And, you know, having five kids, we don't generate a lot of food waste, if I'm honest. But the (laughs) fact that I have something that I had to throw out and that throwing out that stuff was just getting burned and it was it was not having yeah. a purpose that was kind of really important for me to kind of to minimize that waste that was going out mm. and just in the in terms of um, kind of sustainable-ish parenting and the Naked Mums Club it's one of, it's, a, it's a lovely way to engage kids kids love creepy crawlies they yes. love things rotting they love mold they love everything that's mucky yeah and composting is a really really good way of engaging them in that kind of sustainable-ish uh conversation right from a very early age yeah and I think traditionally maybe a lot of us grew up I mean I remember my parents having a compost heap and it was just sort of where the grass cuttings went and the bits and garden waste and things but I think increasingly more and more it is around food waste as well isn't it and around us trying to close that loop on our food and and instead of that food waste being literally waste giving it an opportunity to be turned into into something else now it does feel like composting is a bit of a a dark art you know like and and I I hope you're going to tell me that it's you know that's a perception and it's all over or you know that it's actually really simple so how do we get started? Do we need to go and buy a proper compost bin? Can we make one? Can we just chuck stuff in a corner of the garden? How do we get started? First of all, I would say is just start. You know, don't don't let there be any barriers to that. So my home composting system consists of, I think, the seven of those kind of Dalek compost bins. Right. So just the plain black plastic ones. They were on special offer from the council years ago yeah. and have been periodically, and I've got those. Um, but they're not essential. Mm-hmm. I like them. They're quite neat. They contain things. The black plastic's great because it heats up and that mm-hmm. speeds the composting process along. 
the thing about them is, is they're a kind of an optimum size. So what we're looking for in terms of a compost heap or a compost pile or a compost bin is something that's about one square meter or above. Okay. So if you're going to create a pile, um, and it can just be a pile in the corner of your garden, look to create something that's about that size. Quite often people will contain that material within um, within a compost bin or a, you see pallets used quite a lot, mm. pallets and ends. Um, but really there doesn't have to be anything to do that. Okay. A pile is absolutely fine, fine as long as you're looking at trying to get something that's over a metre. Did I say metre squared? I mean a yeah. metre cubed. Yeah. <laughs> that size. <laughs> so does it need a lid? Not necessarily, but what you tend to find is that if it has, um, if it's open to the elements, first of all, it cools down quite quite quickly. Right. Um, and I I have no real basis for, for, for this in terms of proof, but it feels like it would then wash the nutrients out as well. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do actually cover mine as well. So, But that could be something simple as a sheet of polythene. Um, it could be something like an old piece of carpet, something like that. Yeah. Um, obviously, the black dialect bins have lids, so they're really... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Set up. Yeah, but... But yeah, nothing special. So um, a metre cubed, ideally with a lid, does it matter where we put it? Does it need to be in a sunny part of the garden, in a shady part of the garden? So there's a there's a couple of guidelines that I kind of run with. So um, compost bins tend to work well where they are warm, so sheltered spots are good. But if you can get them in the sun, so mm-hmm. south facing, they will, they will compost really, really quickly. Um, and certainly over the summer, they're almost, un, you know, kind of untouchable at some point because they are so hot. Oh, wow. But the thing for me is like, unfortunately, those those sunny spots are also the best spots for growing vegetables. So the yes. compost is not going to get preference there. Um, <laughs> but the thing for me that's re- the real clincher is put it somewhere that's going to be really convenient. Mm. Because if it's not convenient, you just won't use it. If it's the bottom of your garden and you've got a trek down yeah, there in yeah, yeah. the winter with a bag of rotten vegetables, yes. that's not going to so so mine are actually um I've got I think three in the back garden which are not in the best spots if I'm honest yeah the one that tends to get used a lot is the one that's in the front garden and right next to the garden gate Mm. so every time I come out I'm putting stuff in good idea yeah 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 so yeah so I just think about where's going to be convenient and where's going to work because you will be much more likely to do it if yes and does it have can it be on a hard surface if we've got a patio or does it have to be on soil if you read around it, they will always suggest that you put it on on uh, on an open base. So okay. there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because there's uh, liquid that's generated and that drains out the bottom, mm-hmm. and it's it, you know it's not particularly pleasant sometimes. Mm. And the other argument is then it's more easily accept- accessible by these the insects that we want to see mm. in there, the slugs and the wood lice and, and yeah. things like that. Having said that, the best compost bin I've ever seen was actually on the first floor balcony. Oh wow. And unbelievably, all those insects, all those kind of uh, large-scale food guzzlers, they, they found that on the first floor. I have no idea. I have so no did they idea. end up with worms in it? Yeah. Mad. I know, and I don't know how. I don't know how, but but yeah. Um, so I would say, as a preference, open ground. Yeah. But don't let that be a barrier to just starting. Mm. So how does it work then? How does a compost bin work? Like we put stuff in at the top and... That's all just this mishmash of stuff. And at the bottom, at the bottom comes this nice crumbly brown soil. Like I'm assuming it's magic, but is there any other more scientific explanation? Um, it's it's magic in the sense that nature is magical. Mm. I mean, all we're doing is replicating a process that's perfectly natural. And um, 
in the same way that you know seeds are designed to grow this material is designed to decompose mm. so really we're just we, we don't have to get too kind of preoccupied with managing that because it's right. going to happen what we're trying to do is make that happen quite quickly okay uh, at all possible um, but it is it's just the breakdown of all that material that we're putting in in the presence of oxygen and we've got these lovely great big kind of big creatures like I said you know you get these lovely kind of I think they're leopard slugs they're called oh, wow. big greeny colorly colored slugs we get wood lice in there we get centipedes we get millipedes composting worms these brandling worms or tiger worms that you see and basically all they're doing is just eating what we put in and pooing it out of the other end and our lovely crumbly compost that we've got is actually their poo <laughs> which again the kids love <laughs> yes <laughs> so we don't need to add any like oh, I want to chat to you briefly about wormeries as well later on but for, for a regular compost heap we don't need to add any worms or anything like that they will find their way in there and do their thing yeah um my experience is they will very definitely find the way in there what I would say is sometimes you can benefit if you're setting up a compost heap if you can find somebody that has an existing compost heap and take a small amount of what they've got and put it into your compost bin. That can uh-huh. act a little bit like a sourdough starter. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that introduces some of the, the smaller organisms, the bacteria and the fungi that we also wow. have to see in there as well. So that might help initially. So their rotted compost or just a bit of their, just scoop a bit out the top? They're rotted stuff. So the stuff okay. that's kind of nearing completion, mm. just put a, a handful, it doesn't have to be loads in there, just to get those, those microorganisms in there yeah. and allow them to multiply. Brilliant. Um, so what can we put in there? Because there's always all these, oh, you've got to get your ratios right and you've got to do that. And then I just start going, oh my God, it's too hard. I can't cope. I don't, I can't get the ratios of my own diet right, let alone what I'm putting in the compost bin. No, life's too short, isn't it? Life's too short to be measuring out your compost. So what we're looking for in the material that we're putting in is we're looking to add carbon and nitrogen. Okay. And there's a ratio associated, associated with that to make like optimum compost. But the practice of how we do that is to look at material that's very dry that provides the carbon okay. and material that's a bit wetter that provides the nitrogen. Okay, I and like that. And when you translate all those ratios back, what that actually means is we want equal volumes of those materials. Okay. So we call them, the dry material we call browns and the wet material we call greens. Okay. So we're looking at an equal balance of browns and greens. And in the browns corner, we're looking at things like shredded paper, um, dry twigs, old leaves that you've Mm. swept up anything that has that kind of dryness about it yeah and then in the wet corner we're looking at things like uh, kitchen scraps like vegetable peelings freshly mown grass Mm -hmm. soft hedge trees that kind Mm. of thing and if we get the balance of those equal that's when the you know the magic happens basically okay yeah and what I would say is it, it in in practice have a look in your compost bin. If it's looking a bit dry, add more green material. If right. it's looking a bit wet, add more brown material. And that's okay. all there is to it, really. And do we need to worry about making sure things are nice and small? Or is it just anything that can fit in there can go in there? That would be my, my approach. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to say so, right? <laughs> the optimum, no, the, the maximum size should be about one centimetre cube. So if there's okay. anything bigger than that, it's probably worth chopping it down. I'm a bit like you life's too short to be chopping things into centimeter cubes yeah what I do tend to do is put stuff in there regardless of what size and then when it comes out the end if it hasn't decomposed I just put it back in again okay so this I think there's a bamboo toothbrush handle that's been circulating for about four years now (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping eventually it'll disappear um but yeah so we want a kind of 
um, maximum size of about a centimetre cubed, if possible. Okay, and what can't we put in there? Um, so there's some big no-nos. So one of the big no-nos is animal muck that is from animals that are fed meat. Um, okay. And that's because of the risk of the disease transmission. So things like rabbit bedding or chicken bedding, that's absolutely fine to go in your home compost okay. system. Dog, cat, muck, absolute no. Okay. So the other thing is that I would just stay clear of cooked food. Right. The kind of the cold composting system that I'm describing is it doesn't ever get to a temperature enough to kill any kind of pathogens or any okay. disease causing bacteria. So it doesn't really reach a temperature where that kind of cooked food breaks down mm. enough for things like meat bones and fish bones. Yeah. And stay clear of all that. The other issue with that is sometimes it can attract rats as well and vermin, which is... I was going to ask you about rats. So that's lots of people's fear or concern, isn't it? That they, they start a compost heap and that it's going to be home to, you know, Mr. Rat and Mrs. Rat and their family of 20 billion rats. How realistic is that concern? Um, if you avoid the cooked food, you should be absolutely fine. You right. should be fine. There is a, there's always an outside possibility that a rat will find a compost bin, especially over winter because it's warm and it's yeah. dry. And that is an issue. Um, and it seems to be a particular problem at the moment because I think like local authorities have, have stopped the lost a lot of those pest control services right. over the last year. And because rubbish collections, general waste collections, people are finding it more difficult to mm. manage the waste. So it is something that you need to keep an eye on. Um, rats really hate being disturbed. They don't like kind of noise and movement. Um, so this idea of turning your compost heap to speed it up, which mm. basically means just mixing everything up again, doing that quite regularly is a really good piece of mm. advice. That stops it. Um, and I also get the kids, every time the kids are going to school, I get them to thump the outside of the compost bins. So... Um, <laughs> So I'm laughing because we've had a bad issue over the weekend, um, but that the, the rats were actually living in a pile of rubbish, not my rubbish, somebody else's rubbish, but were scurrying behind my compost bins to hide. And I've been uh, through okay. them and there's no evidence of the rats in the compost bin, but yeah, they yeah, yeah. going there to hide. So it is something just to keep an eye on, but I think generally speaking, it, it's something we're, we're all living with at the moment any, yeah. any day, regardless of whether there's compost bins or not. Yeah. Now, you mentioned turning them, and I read something, I don't know what, what it was in, saying that, you know, if we don't manage our compost heaps properly, then really they're just sitting there and, and you know, acting like landfill and emitting methane. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm like, I've got this mini landfill site in my garden because I don't, I don't turn it. Like, what should, what should I be doing to make sure it's properly doing its thing and I'm not killing the world? I know it was one of the, when I heard that, I thought, oh my God, all these things I think I'm doing yeah. for the rats and I'm not, oh no. Um, no, I mean, what we try, what we can try and do in our compost bins is create air spaces. Um, so we're looking at a, an aerobic process that's going on there that we need the oxygen and the oxygen allows it, it to break down. So that's what we're trying to do by both turning. Um, and also there's really simple things that you can do, like if you're putting paper and cards in it, just crumple it up so that it creates those air spaces within oh, okay. it. Um, so that's quite a useful tip in terms of turning. I mean, again, it's like it's not the it's not the most exciting job in the world no. turning compost, is it? You know, it takes a bit of effort to to do it. We've got a hot composter, which I'm going to ask you about as well. But like to get a fork, you know, I'm not that tall to get a fork in there, and that's a really awkward like position and maneuver and stuff. Should should like I just well, there's a big sort of I don't know half a wooden stake bite, and I just sort of periodically ram that in. Is that enough or should I be physically like, obviously, if it needs turning, I will get my husband to do it because I cannot be asked. 
but like what what should I be doing well that if that works for you that sounds fine to me (laughs) but I don't know is it working for my compost heap (laughs) as I say you're adding the air spaces into it so I think that'll probably Uh, okay absolutely fine I mean what I do with the Dalek bins is like literally I take the whole thing off move it to to kind of a meter over to the left or to the right shovel everything back in and then do that in sequence (gasps) but you know it took me about four hours I was gonna say how often do you do that it should be done more regularly than it's done that's all I'm gonna say so (laughs) I try and do it at least once a year okay that's all right I thought you were gonna say like every every month (laughs) no no there's Uh. there's like cake to be eaten and wine to be drunk (laughs) not at all no, I probably do it about once a year. Okay. Um, and I tend to do it over winter. And the reason that I do that is partly because the rest of the kind of the gardening jobs are fairly mm. quiet. And because, you know, you know, it warms you up, it's quite energetic. <laughs> and to just kind of remove any possibilities of any kind of rats in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually did mine over the weekend. Wow. And kind of, it was literally, you know, move it, fork everything back in, move it along and then yeah, do yeah, that yeah. In sequence. And that works for me, but... Really, if you don't turn it at all, you're still going to get compost out at the end. It's just going to take you longer. Okay. So it might be, instead of six months, it might take you two years. So is that the usual? If we're starting a compost heap from scratch, we sort of get our compost bin or however we're going to do it, we put it in, it's going to be at least six months before we can take anything out of the bottom. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say six months would be optimistic. You know, it's very dependent on things like if it's in the sunshine, how regularly mm. it's turned, how small the material is that goes in there. Um, but I would say six months is probably the minimum, and that would probably be a summertime kind of. Um, so if outfit. we start it now, because we're recording this in March, we might have some compost for growing stuff next year. Yes, I think that's probably realistic rather okay. than being kind of overly optimistic about it. Yeah. So when we are growing, I know during lockdown, lots of people got into growing their own veg, and it's kind of a really rubbish garden. I'm a really rubbish gardener, but um, I'm told that this is the time of year for sort of starting to think about or to be growing stuff. So we would go and buy our bags of hopefully peat-free compost. The stuff that comes out of the bottom of our compost bin, is that the same? Can we literally use that instead of going and buying bags of plastic compost? Or is it? do we use it in a different way? So the way that I use it is, is I use it just to kind of add nutrients back to the soil. So where I've had a vegetable crop in, then I will add probably, it's only about a centimetre or so on the surface of the soil. Oh, and okay. I just leave that, yeah. just leave it and allow the the, the kind of um, the worms to kind of to mix it all together. There's no okay. digging in or anything like that. Um, you can use it for growing seeds. Um, and there's plenty of kind of, I suppose, recipes on the internet. But generally speaking, um, it's quite rich in seeds, like quite low nutrient levels um, to grow initially. Um, So the practice is usually to mix it with something that has quite low nutrient levels. So something like leaf mold. Okay. So I still buy in compost for seed sowing. And one of the reasons is that I use a lot. I Mm. couldn't possibly generate enough compost to use it like that. Partly because there's things like bamboo trust brushes floating around (laughs) in my compost bin. So sometimes, you know, it, it would be, uh, it probably wouldn't have the, the best kind of texture yeah. to use the seed sowing. So, uh, yeah, I do buy in kind of peat-free compost to sow seeds in, but it's entirely possible. And again, it depends on kind of the quality of compost that's coming yeah. out and the, the materials that you have at your disposal as well. So we've got like a strawberry, a little strawberry bed. Can I just dump some compost on top of that? Will I squash all the... I'm just looking now, trying to think if there's still, are there still strawberry plants on it? It's like in a corner of the garden I haven't gone to recently. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's fine. I would just, I wouldn't, obviously wouldn't cover the leaves because yeah. the leaves, they still need to photosynthesize. But if you could just place it round that. Okay. And nature's wonderful. Nature will find a way of getting those nutrients to the plants as they need them. So it's really, it's a really simple process of just spreading it around the plants that are in the beds. And can I put it around the base of like fruit trees and stuff? Yeah, so with fruit trees, generally they pick up nutrients kind of underneath the outer perimeter of the tree canopy. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so they're actually, it's better to place them kind of, well, it depends on the size of your fruit tree, but maybe a metre or a metre and a metre and a half away from the base of the stem. Oh, interesting, because I would have just automatically piled it around the stem. Yeah, no, the, the best place is actually just underneath that kind of tree line. So it's where the um, the outer margins of the tree roots are, mm. oh, um, underneath the ground. But trees, are because they have that lovely deep root system, they tend to manage to get nutrients quite mm. easily anyway. So I wouldn't say it would be like a priority to do that. Oh, okay. Every couple of years, it might help. Now, we had a question in the um, Nacodemum's Eco Club from someone saying their compost heap seems to have kind of stalled. What can they do to get it going um, again? And should their husband pee on it? That was going to be my suggestion, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, yeah. So first of all, I would say turn it. Yeah. That will speed things up straight away. And actually, yeah, because of the really high nitrogen content of wheat, it's a really good idea to add a bit of wheat to it. If you were doing that, so that's something that we couldn't do as a business. Um, because but you're going to say as women, because it's difficult to squat on it. <laughs> and that, yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, yeah, that's a really good way of speeding things up just by adding all that, that uh, nutrient to it. But yeah, I mean, turn, turning would be brilliant in those circumstances. And just check out, sometimes they can get really dry as well. Oh, okay. So sometimes it's an idea to add a little bit of water as well. Oh, okay. Something. So you can literally chuck sort of, a, you know, a, okay, a water. bottle of water on it. Yeah. And it, it, like, is it normal to expect them to, to slow down over winter? Well, quite a lot of people have sort of what looks like a dormant compost heap come this time of year and hopefully it'll get going again in the spring. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, I, I kind of had a look at mine over the weekend and, the, you know, the, it was a, a, a relatively sunny day and everything you can see inside, everything's going like the clappers, loads of worms and loads of insects and everything's mm. packed. On the cold days, you know, over winter, the, really, the natural process is everything slows down. So, yes, the really kind of as we get into these nice, bright, warm, sunny days, they should speed up quite considerably. Yeah. Cool. There's lots of or there's a few different types of kind of air quotes composting, aren't there? We've got a hot composter because our council, um, like yours, don't collect food waste, but they do do a, a sort of discount scheme on these hot composters. So we've got one called a Green Joanna and I probably do everything wrong with it, but it um, it just sits there and we haven't got a massive garden. So we haven't got loads of garden waste either. So it felt like the, the combination that it needed of garden waste to kind of food waste felt doable for us. So we can put cooked food in there. We can put, you know, all our food waste and we can put garden stuff in there. Again, no idea how it works. Do you know? It's exactly the same process, except um, I don't do composting. And the simple reason for that is I'm too tight to buy a hot composter. Um, but yeah, it's the same process. It's just warmed up. It's So they're, they're usually quite heavily insulated. So right. the heat, as the heat's generated, it stays in there and we get those kind of nice 50, 60 degrees Celsius. Yeah in there and that's again why you can put your cooked food in because so would that putting... not kill the bugs doesn't seem to no i mean the bugs in composts are a compost is amazing because they will find their preference into yeah. temperature and space so when you first put your compost your composting material into a bin you probably see if it's food waste you'll see a lot of these kind of brandling worms mm. they're the kind of the first primary consumers 
if you put a lot of kind of woody material in, you'll see all the wood lice. And as soon oh, as it's okay. decomposed, they'll go and find something else. So they're very much, they're very capable of finding their own preferred habitat within that compost. Yeah. So, so no, if it gets too hot, if it gets too wet, if it gets too dry, they'll just move out and come back when the conditions are more suitable. Now, our hot compost bin, and this is where I'm not sure I'm doing it right. When we dig out the bottom, my vision or my expectation is it would just be nice, dry, crumbly compost. It's a bit stinky. It's a bit slimy. It's a bit like you wouldn't want to, you know, put it in pots or anything like that. So, A, I don't know if I'm doing something wrong, but then actually I spoke to somebody else who said they've got one and, and it's the same. And that what they then do is dig it out and then put it in a normal compost bin for them to sort of carry on rotting down. Do you think I'm doing it right? <laughs> I think what, what you've probably got there is a kind of an anaerobic system going on. So they, they are not, my stick, my stick method isn't working, is it? <laughs> it's, it's, I'm, 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 maybe there's room for improvement. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> my, my experience of hot composting is not great, but that sounds to me like what you've actually got there is kind of too much of that kind of green material, that nitrogen rich material. Yeah, because like it is predominantly sort of wet food waste that goes in there yeah. so we need to get some shredded paper in there and some I do put the chicken um straw and poo in does that count as wet or dry that's that wonderful combination of both greens greens and browns so you've got the very dry straw there mm. which would class as your brown material and then you've got the chicken poo itself which, which would class as the green material right so um so that's actually perfect just to go in as mm. it is but I would say, yeah, I mean, if you look for something like shredded paper, uh, brown paper mm. bags, anything like that, plain, plain stuff, plain cards, that kind of thing. Um, if you've got a local office where they're shredding a lot of material, yeah. go and bag up what they've got and, and get that in as well. And maybe get on a stool and give it a poke with a fork. I think you could probably delegate that job, but yeah. <laughs> I say I'm not tall enough, I'll get. I'll have to get my husband <laughs> uh, And one thing I meant to ask you with the regular compost bins, and it applies here as well, Food waste bags, you know, the, the sort of compostable, biodegradable things that we put in our food waste caddies, can they go in our cold compost and or hot compost bins? It's really difficult to unpick this stuff because mm. there's a lot of things that come with this like biodegradable label. And then when you look into the detail, it either means that it's plastic that kind of crumbles into microplastics. Mm or it's um, only compostable in a kind of commercial facility mm. where it's heated as well as turned. So it's really difficult to kind of make any like general statements about mm. that. Actually getting that information is really difficult. Yeah. We don't make it easy to yeah. find out. My, my kind of rule of thumb is for stuff like that. I mean, we, we, I've got a caddy in the kitchen and we, I just use paper bags in that. Mm. And I usually have enough from vegetable delivery and things to, to, mm. to just put the paper bags in. Um, but my usual rule of thumb is if you're in doubt about something like that, it's probably better just to throw it out mm. um, than risk having kind of microplastics in the compost bin. And, you know, we're fortunate in that if we put stuff in the general waste, it gets burned. So yes. it, it, it still has a use. It's not ideal, but it still has a use. Yeah. And that's a better idea than contam contaminating my compost. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's difficult to unpick it. It's probably worth a, a quick email to the um, manufacturers mm. if you've got time and if you can be bothered yeah to say like exactly what are the conditions yeah for yeah, yeah. But yeah they're not making things are improving but they're not making it easy yeah I think my understanding and, and I'm absolutely willing to be told that this is wrong is that if something says certified home compostable you can put it in your home compost bin and it should degrade in those conditions if it just says compostable 
my understanding is that needs industrial composting conditions which get much hotter and need and there aren't yeah. that many industrial composting sites around the country so actually sometimes it's just I hesitate to say it's greenwashing but it is a difficult thing to then sort of deal yes. with brilliant okay uh so we've done a little bit on hot composting bakashi bins now I know you've got some haven't you yeah so this is this is a relatively new development for me and um I've, I have a partner who used to work in kind of waste and recycling and has been hammering the, the benefits of Bakashi to me for probably about seven years now and I've been ignoring him. But yeah, so we've recently, because of the kind of business that we are, we generate a lot of food waste mm. and, you know, just vegetable peelings and bits yeah. and pieces like that. And I was really looking for a system that would work and would deal with that because we can't put it into our regular composting system because it's food waste uh, and kitchen waste, actually. But the Bakashi system, I thought, let's let's give this a go. So we've set that up and that seems to be working really well at the moment. So explain to people what it is. So I'll show you because I've got I've got resort, I've got visual aids. <laughs> so. <laughs> I have to give, do good descriptions as well for the podcast. So Catherine's holding up a big grey bin with a, with tap, a tap at the bottom. Yeah, brilliant. So that's my Bakashi bin. And we've got two, so we're using them in sequence. So we're filling one and then we are, um, once that's empty, that the, the material from that goes in the regular compost and then we start on the next one. So we've got okay. two bins going at the moment. Um, and Bakashi's, it's a different system. So um, it's an anaerobic system. And what we do is we put the materials into the bin and we try and eliminate the oxygen, but we mix those materials with Bakashi bran. So Bakashi bran is like, um, I've got that as well, but it, it looks like bran, um, but it's impregnated with something called my, uh, effective microorganisms. Okay. So the effective microorganisms are a mix of fungus and bacteria that break down that material in anaerobic conditions. So, so there's a there's um, an ongoing cost or an ongoing mm. ongoing resource that we have to bring bring in to do that. So I'm investigating possibilities of eliminating that or preventing us having to do that. Mm. And what we get is we get a material in the bin that we can then put in a regular composting system that's partially decomposed. And we also get a liquid feed off the little tap at the bottom. So we actually grow quite a lot of plants in, in our office. We've got grow lights in here. Um, and the, the stuff that we get off the bottom is really useful for feeding those oh, plants. Um, and then the re regular material kind of goes in the compost bin. Um, and it works really well because we've got a system that stays indoors. There's no smell generated right. at all, which is fab because that wouldn't be great in an office or mm, a house. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, and it just sits kind of in part of the kitchen um, and just slowly does what it needs to do. And what can you put in there then? There's loads more variation in that. So we, we're putting pretty much everything in there, including food waste. So just thinking back to what I've put in it this morning, I had a pot of yogurt that had gone mouldy. That's gone in. What else have we had? We've had all sorts. We don't get a lot in terms of like food scrapings, like plate scrapings. Mm. But yeah, all those like little bits of things that you forget about, like the, yeah. the odd slice of bread that falls down at the back of the shelf. And all but if you did have a, a fussy toddler or something, you could put the, the food scrapings in there. You could put the, can you put meat in there? Yeah, you can put meat and fish. So oh, I mean, we're pretty much a vegan household. So there isn't, there isn't a great deal of that for us. But yeah, meat and fish would be fine to go in there as well. Okay. So we got one years and years ago of a cashy system because we were in a different house and we didn't have much of a, well, we didn't really have any sort of particular garden. So we thought, oh, brilliant, we can put, we'll get this and that'd be great. But obviously the bit I missed was that then you have to have a compost bin to then put the stuff in. Because, you know, we didn't have a big enough garden for a compost bin. So that was the reason for getting it. And then I was like, 
oh, I've got this kind of fermented stuff now. And what what do I do with that? Like, so I think that's quite an important point, isn't it? That if you if you're getting them because of a you don't have a garden or whatever, you need to have a friendly neighbor or somebody up the allotment or whatever that you can go and chuck it into their compost. Is that right? Yeah, there's still material to dispose of at the end of the day. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lovely way of actually kind of networking with your immediate mm. community. Um, and, you know, as, as somebody who has compost bins, I would love the material from other people's Bikashi bins, um, given half the chance. But what, I mean, what a lovely way to build up a connection with, with mm. people in your neighbourhood if you don't have that available to, to, to kind of to talk to people who might do so. And there is a website, I think it's called Waste Share, and I will check and I will put it on the show notes. Mm where it literally has a, I think it's global. So it has a map of everybody who's got a compost bin who's registered on there, who would happily accept waste. Everybody who's got waste, but hasn't got a compost bin. And the idea is that you hook up with the local people. So that's amazing. If you are somebody who has, you know, might have, you might live up the road from Catherine and she's like, come and bring it all to me. <laughs> so that's a brilliant way. But if you haven't got that, then, you know, put out a request on your local Freegal group or Olio or something like that and say, look, I've got this semi-composted waste. Can anybody take it? Or that kind of thing and as you say just such a lovely way to build up or go and start randomly chatting to people when you're out for a walk down the allotments or something (laughs) yeah it has been known (laughs) (laughs) so we've done cold composting hot composting bakashi that just leaves us with wormeries i have done a whole podcast on wormeries with anna de la vega who is just brilliant um who runs the urban worm but just briefly again i think wormeries might be an option for people who don't have a big garden or who are looking for um, something more specifically for food waste and things have you have you done a wormery actually again because I just haven't had the need to Mm. have a wormery before um my understanding of wormeries that is that they make use of these um the brandling worms that I talked Mm. about which tend to be those kind of first primary consumers so you put your material in and, and they're there straight away so my understanding is that they make most use of that rather than you know some of the the other kind of fungus and bacteria that might be in there mm. um and if i understand correctly there is a, a liquid that's generated yes. from them as well which again can be used as a plant food so yeah. it's kind of i guess it's somewhere between kind of composting and bakashi mm. and bakashi you know from people i've talked to about they're, they're a really great option if yeah. you have a small space and you're generating a lot of food waste as opposed to a lot of gardening waste mm. um so definitely worth considering yeah definitely and with wormeries, you have to be a bit careful about sort of lots of citrus fruit and lots of onions and things because the and like, you know, leftovers of curry and things like that, because the worms don't like it. With a bakashi bin, do you need to worry about your balance of citrus and onion skins or can you just chuck everything in there? With all these systems that we're talking about, it's about balance. OK, I think I might actually be addicted to oranges. So I have at least an orange a day <laughs> and that's just me. So we tend to get quite a lot of citrus peelings, actually. Yeah. But we also generate quite a lot of garden waste. So I think balancing those two things are absolutely yeah. fine. If you were just putting citrus skins in because of the high acid content, then it might start to be a problem. Yeah. But my, my kind of philosophy is, is if it doesn't work, try it. If it doesn't work, yeah. make some changes to try and make it work. Again, it's it's about kind of not mystifying that too much. We're, we're looking just to make things, you know, everything's a learning experience. Mm. You put loads of citrus in and your compost slows down or you find that you've suddenly got no worms. Yes. You know, take some out, bag them up, put them in a little bit later, add yeah. some different stuff. Just try and keep that kind of balance all the time and keep an eye on it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Can you put like kitchen towel, you know, like just white kitchen towel, can you put that in your compost heap? 
Yeah, um, anything like that that's fine, is absolutely fine. Anything that has that kind of material, the ultimate kind of plant material source. Is tissue paper all right? Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, kind of toilet roll tissue paper, that's absolutely fine. Not wet wipes, because they are actually plastic no. based, aren't they? But a lot of them yeah. are now, well, some of them are now, air quotes, plastic free. So, but again, I think you'd probably need to check with the manufacturer what it's actually made of and if it would break down. Yeah, and I'm just thinking in terms of kind of the pathogens as well. So mm. kind of toilet tissue that, you know, has been used to blow noses from people who've got colds might not be an idea. Um, but toilet roll that, God, my kids have a terrible habit of using toilet roll to wipe everything off. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be fine. Yeah. Wet wipes, baby wipes really don't rot down at no. all. Um, you know, we're finding them kind of in compost seats on allotment that must be like nine, ten years old, totally intact. And, and likewise for plastic tea bags as well, you know. Yeah. We, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get the little tea bag ghosts, don't you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I really want to ask you about, because you commented, I, I mean, this feels like years ago, but I asked in my Sustainable Facebook group, because apparently you can get, you can compost nappies. And I was like, has anybody done this? And you were like, yeah, I have. And I was like, Catherine, if anyone was going to, it was you. Talk to us about that. How does that even work? My experience of nappies is now at least 12 years old. <laughs> but, yeah, so because my, my youngest two are twins and like washable nappies, mm. I, I'd love to have used washable nappies, but washable nappies on newborn twins, we just, we just didn't have the money to Broken make that out yeah. there. And there weren't nappy ivories and things mm. like that going on at the time. Um, so we used disposables and um, I found actually compostable disposable nappies. We use those with a liner, so the, the liner sat inside the nappy, mm. and if it was a poo, we just hide the poo down the toilet, because you yeah. do, do some things as parents. I know, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then threw the liner away, and then the, the wet nappy underneath went in the compost bin. I have to say, there was never any evidence of them, so I can only assume that they did completely rot so down. newborn twins, like, I mean, you must have got through a phenomenal number of nappies, like... Did you not just end up with a compost bin full of just nappies? Well, there was a, there was other material going into it, okay. but yeah, there was a lot. And I, I wouldn't say for any extent we used those exclusively. You know, there was a mix where we had some washable nappies that we used that we yeah. generally ran out until five, about half past nine in the morning. Yeah. Um, and then we did use some regular disposables as well. And, you know, it's it, I'd love to stand here and say that, no, that no, I didn't, but... Yeah. Sometimes you just have to do the best that you can do. And at the time, that was the best that we could do. Amazing. So, but it's only yeah. the compostable ones that you can put in the compost because the, the regular ones do have that sort of chemically gel thing, don't you? Which I can imagine probably isn't that great for... Regular bin for those ones, absolutely. And any that I, I would say that were soiled with poo as well should oh, probably okay. be yeah. bin to be, to be perfectly healthy about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, it's worth, I don't know if those nappies are still manufactured, if it would be worth kind of looking into them as an option if you don't think that washables are going to be a system that works for you. But I mean, I think that is next level composting, to be honest. I think we've moved out of 101 realm into like one, <laughs> 123 or something. <laughs> um, brilliant. This has been absolutely wonderful. It's answered so many of my questions. So I hope it's answered lots of other people's questions as well. Any final sort of golden nuggets or tips for people? So, yeah, I think that the thing I probably want to say is just to try and switch your perception a little bit and, and to look at, you know, generating compost and making something that's useful rather than mm. looking at it as a way to get rid of waste. So because that makes those kind of sustainable-ish choices a lot easier to take, actually. So things like, you know, instead of looking at 
kind of the waste that's generated from using tea bags, start looking at the compost material that's generated from using tea leaves. Mm. You start to look at things with a completely different perspective and you start eyeing things up that you think, oh, that would make good compost. Mm. It puts a different slant on making some of those decisions and it provides a bit more of an impetus to make some of those decisions yeah. as well. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So as a, you know, a little nugget, I would, I would just look at it on a creative process as opposed to a destructive process. Yes. Oh, I love that. So where can we come and find you online with Barefoot Kitchen? So we have a website, which you'll find if you put Barefoot Kitchen Middlesbrough in, because I think there's one in in, uh, Oxford as well. But we also have a Facebook page as well, which we update regularly, much more regularly than the website, which is quite shocking, to be honest. Um, And we're on Instagram as well and quite happy to answer any kind of inquiries or queries that come through those mediums as well. You're an absolute superstar. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely welcome. It's a joy. I love composting. It's really nice to talk about it liberally. (laughs) I am going to start calling you the compost lady. been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, Do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.